Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another show where I get to speak to incredible people from around the world, incredible leaders I should say from around the world and today's leader is no less. He's been on the leadership ladder for many a decade. I'm not saying he's old. But I am saying he's very, very experienced and I took the opportunity of reading uh, through his uh, bio this morning and I was absolutely fascinated. It sounds like we've come from the same sort of, we could have been cut from the same cloth, Nigel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It's great to have you here. So Nigel, you're a chartered champion of the uh, Chartered Management uh, Institute. You're head of professional qualifications at the Inspirational Development Group. I love that title, by the way past director for National Centre for Strategic Leadership. Uh, you've been a consultant, you've been a lecturer, all around the theme of leadership. What is it about leadership that really gets you, that inspires you to move forward? I guess like a, a lot of people who, who really want to be good at it, it's mostly started with me being bloody useless at it. <laughs> <laughs> and my first, my first CEO role in my 20s, I had no clue. I did everything backwards and wrong. And in the end, my friend whose company it was, who'd asked me to come in and take the job, had a quiet word with me and said, this isn't really for you, is it? And I spent several months then licking my wounds and thinking, what just happened? I thought I was clever. How come I'm not good at this? And and started a, what's turned out to be a lifelong journey of trying to understand what a leader should really be there to do. You know, I was I was being a boss. Yeah. And there's a big difference between a boss and a leader, isn't there? I think That's this is huge. something that I've learned over the many decades that I've been involved in this sort of, uh, um, uh, what do I call it? Do I call it some sort of science or some mystery? I th because leadership continues to be a bit of a mystery, and I think it needs to be, because otherwise we stop growing. Yeah, exactly that. And I think there's an alchemy involved in this too, in that it's not just about you, it's about the relationships with other, with other people. So therefore, your leadership changes because of them and well, or at least it should you know and they shape the way you approach things if you're paying attention and i think for a lot of leaders perhaps they're not paying enough attention to that so. i agree and don't you think that leadership also changes with the changing times in which we exist you know very often we've heard the phrase the vuca world volatile uncertain complex ambiguous and i think the world has never been more vuca than it is now particularly over the last few years so leadership styles and leadership thinking needs to change and adapt with, with with the changing circumstances in the world as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think particularly thinking about your kind of uh, premise around the whole idea of human-centred and emotional intelligence things, those things were always critically important, but it's become obvious now yeah. to a lot of people who wouldn't have believed that five years ago, you know, that there's certain things that I speak at conferences about about this stuff sometimes, and one of the people I often share a platform with, they talk about uh, male suicide. 
and how that's now the single biggest killer of men under the age of 55. We have more than cancer or drinking or road traffic accidents or any of those kind of things. And that's terrifying, you know, that half the human race <laughs> feels so disenfranchised, disconnected, uns unsure of themselves, lacking in confidence and self-esteem, that they'd rather end it than find a way. That's, that scares the hell out of me, you know. And so, and uh, so, I've I've been working a lot on the way people think, and the and why they think the way they do, and things like you know em empathy and emotional intelligence, and also mental toughness, which is an area I work in a lot, um, is a, is about actually being there for people when they need you as a leader. And if you're too busy worrying about you, how can you do that? I find that fascinating, uh, Nigel, because, you know, if we'd have, and you talk about five years ago, in, in the last five years, this focus around emotional intelligence, human-centered kind of leadership has, has really evolved and really grown. Isn't it fascinating that while it's always been important, it's only really taken hold over the last five years. And it demonstrates the agility and the adaptability that we need to have as leaders and to understand how the horizon is constantly changing. And, and I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, certainly the, the whole lockdown experience and that isolated working and all of this kind of stuff, I think that's really played into the, the greater need for people to be connected uh, and have relationships based on trust. Exactly that, yeah. And you think what we've done to trust in leaders across every spectrum over recent years, political ones, you know, whatever they might be, um, it's no surprise that that's a challenge for us. Yeah. And and like you say, it was it was it was always true, and yet now even those who would have said it was nonsense can't avoid recognizing the problem now and the issues that need to be addressed and. The relationships that people have had in a workplace, I've I've often felt, have been based on job title. You know, I'm the this, yep. therefore I outrank yep. you because you're that. That whole hierarchical leadership kind of approach. Yeah. And I will speak to you as if that's who you are. And in fact, you're just another person like me trying to do the best you can for, for your stakeholders and, and your team. And, and that stuff is just nonsense. Yeah. Why do you think it is, Nigel, that uh, even in this world where there is this th this recognition that hey these are the kind of leaders that we need to be we need to be much more focused on the people in our organization or the stakeholders that we operate with whether they be client or you know uh, chairmen's of boards etc etc we need to be much more focused around those relationships and the human beings behind the relationships um so why is it that some organizations do you think still operate in that sort of hierarchical approach that that, that hiding behind status, ranks, or or titles. Cultures are hard to shift, aren't they? They find that that mm. when an organisation has a way of doing things, you know, it's the old Drucker thing about culture eating strategy for breakfast. You know that if you come in with all kinds of wonderful ideas and intentions and what you're going to do, you'll get assimilated by the Borg very quickly because the organisation will show you and teach you how to behave. So that's one factor I think that makes it hard for people to shift it unless you get a a kind of groundswell and, a, and a, a, a sufficient connection with people for a lot of you to want to change it. But but I think another thing is that we reward the old behaviours. You know, we're still promoting people in a lot of organisations for being tough and dynamic and decisive and and hitting their targets and this kind of thing. And and we should be rewarding people for creating happiness and engagement and, and innovation and atmosphere and all those kind of things. And actually, in a lot of organisations, that's still seen as not doing the job properly. 
you know, we use that whole hard and soft thing. And it's always amazed me. I've always said, I've, I wrote a thing about this years ago that said, um, hard's easy and soft is hard. And it's easier to be driven by KPIs, things that you can tangibly measure, than to be driven by the the, the, the culture within your organisation, the personality, the feeling within your organisation. I always say that, uh, you know, um, if you inspire people to do something, they will do it far better to um, work to the nth degree than if you tell people to do something. They'll only work to the minimum standard. And you know what? We've got this new phraseology that's that's kicking about over the last couple of years. You know, that we've heard of the great resignation, of course. Uh, and then we've heard of quiet quit, quitting, where people work to the minimum standards. Uh, and there's a new phrase that I heard the other day, loud quitting, which I think is really about, um, symbolises really all of the industrial action that's going on. Uh, where people feel that they they literally cannot do anything more aside from taking industrial action to to wake up their bosses, their leaders, or the government, whoever it may be. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I've always been very pro the idea of of labour movements and trade unions and things for exactly that reason, because sometimes in large organisation, that's the only time the senior leaders hear the truth, as mm. other people see it, because they don't have often life experiences that that enable them to empathise for real. You know, we, we've talked about this before, this idea that we still have a, a senior leadership cohort in a lot of areas of society that, that started in the upper middle <laughs> and moved up to the top. And they've never experienced what it's like to not be able to afford to pay the rent or to not have enough food on the table, you know, or to just feel like, you're powerless and unable to affect things. And they don't know what that's like. Yeah. Uh, you and I were chatting about, you know, both of us have come from working class backgrounds. You know, I'm one of n- nine people living in a two and a half bedroom terraced house, but still had a happy childhood. But I think that really has grounded me in the and shaped me to become the leader that I am. Uh, and similar with yourself, you know, council house, uh, uh, estate that you lived on and, uh, and it shaped you as a leader. It has. And, uh, my natural rebelliousness, which is slightly less obvious now than it was probably 30 years ago, but not much, um, has always led me to challenge the status quo and ask lots of questions. And generally speaking, that's not that's not acceptable behaviour in a lot of organisations. It got me expelled from school. Uh, it, got, it got me uh, fired from a number of jobs. Uh, but it also enabled me to decide that I've had enough of this and go off to around the world as a musician where I was in my own master of my own destiny. And when I came back, yeah. I was a different person because I'd learned to trust myself. You know, and, you know, most of my rebelliousness came from a, a lack of confidence often rather than, than confidence. But it, yeah, so yeah, I, I, I recognise when I'm talking to a lot of leaders that, that our road to that point has been very different. And as a consequence, it's impossible for me to understand what it feels like to be them and vice versa. And, and the more real conversations we have with people and the more relationship building we do the closer together we'll get and and we don't often create the space for it in organizations because we're so busy doing things and you know trying to complete to-do lists or attend meetings on our calendar or you know respond to emails things it's all these tasks going on that even before uh, pandemic prevented people from talking to each other I remember running a program for a group of senior leaders from a global organization, Cracky, probably 25 years ago, uh, and was horrified to discover there was three people in the room who worked on the same floor in a building in their country and emailed each other regularly and had never been in this, never met. And you think, That's incredible. Yeah, and that was long before the days of a pandemic. That was just 
They were so busy sitting in front of their computer doing work, that even though there was somebody 30 feet away that they needed to work alongside, they just emailed each other. Well, we've all heard stories, haven't we? And I've seen this in, in practice where people literally have offices next door to each other and they're emailing each other rather than yeah. just nipping across yeah. next door and having a conversation, which actually could be much deeper. Uh, we rely on uh, this sort of electronic communication and it's happening more and more, isn't it, now with social media? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And we've seen some of the toxicity that results from that. Although what clearly it has good things too. I, I wouldn't have any connection with my family and friends who now live a long way away if it wasn't for Facebook, mm. the, the old person's version of social media. <laughs> and uh, it's, it is interesting, isn't it, that... That that I, I I I've got a paper going out today actually on on, on IDG's website about this. That you know, I used to share an office in my days in education with a chap who was extremely uh, introverted and overly polite. Probably would be the way to put it. He once reached over my shoulder to put a post-it note with with a message on it whilst I'm sitting in the chair. It was like that was a, an epiphany for me. It was like. What are you doing? But he's so he was so paranoid about interrupting me when I was working or about having to have a conversation that he'd rather write it on a post-it note from two feet away and reach over my shoulder and put it on my screen. But it, this is diversity. You know, we talk about diversity all the time. And when often, often when we do talk about diversity, it's all it sort of geared around representation, demog demographic diversity and, you know, uh, protected characteristics. I, I, I mean, I don't agree with that because I think it homogenizes people. It stereotypes people. And actually, it, it's counterintuitive when it comes to diversity. And true diversity is really two things for me. One, recognising everybody is different. Everybody, every single one of us is different. We've all walked a different path. And secondly, is the true inclusion uh, when it comes to diversity is, is embracing people's ideologies, thoughts and, uh, and ideas uh, and to create creativity and innovation in your organisation. But the problem is, isn't it, that we still have, as you quite rightly say, people at senior levels in many, many organisations who think and come from a similar background. And consequently, what you're having is that the status quo is maintained because there's no generation of new ideas. And in part, you know, if you look across some of the public sector organisations, this is happening. We've seen this playing out right now. Whereas the ground floor, ground floor is getting really frustrated, they can see that the landscape has changed and they want to do things in a new way. They want to challenge the way they've always done things. You still have the some of the higher echelons where they are very much stuck in a singular kind of mindset. And because they're surrounded by similar people thinking in a similar way, that, that weight is holding them back from being more creative and and really living in a in embracing the modern world yeah and you, and you see when you get somebody coming in particularly as the most senior leader with a different view about this stuff yeah. it can be shifted but it's really hard and it constantly tries to, to shift back and you know you can understand why i've used the phrase you know turkeys don't vote for christmas many times you know a lot of those people um they need it to be maintained because that's their protection. That's their community. And if it changes too much, will they become obsolete? I mean, I think they have already. They just don't realize it. But, <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is a challenge for, uh, for a lot of those leaders because uh, the current paradigm or the old traditional paradigm serves them well. You, know, you see people in, we talked about political situations, you see people there in political situations who have the right sound, and the right kind of 
connections, um, but do they actually have the skills needed to do that job well? Do they actually have the respect and, and followership from their own people that, that only happens to you saying before that through the intrinsic motivation that comes from trust, you know, um, if they don't have any of that stuff, then it becomes Disneyland. I think in a lot of organizations, you get, uh, there was an old saying back in the communist days of, of Russia. They used to say, uh, we pretend to work and in, and in return, they pretend to pay us. And I see that in, in organizations yes, quite often where you've got people all, all doing a role play. Now, I'm role-playing being in charge. You're role-playing being subservient and doing my bidding. And actually, we're both kidding. Yeah, so let's get real. Reminds me of something else that we discussed uh, just before we went on air. Uh, and we were talking about how in so many organisations, I'm certainly finding this in the work that I do, and we do very similar work, and you must be finding this. In so many organisations, people have uh, managed to get themselves into very senior leadership positions but in many, many of those organisations, these people have never received any kind of robust leadership development. How is that even possible? How is it that organisations are elevating people into these incredibly responsible positions with high levels of authority and not investing in those people to equip them with the leadership skills? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember when, when I, I was first appointed CEO at the National Centre for Strategic Leadership, one of the first things we did was to go out. I, I, I kind of rented a few PhD final year students to go out and do interviews with, with CEOs around the area um, and to find out why they, firstly, whether they did anything about their own leadership development, and if not, why not? Mm. And it was very interesting that for a lot of them, they associated leadership development with, with improving their CV. And they'd already made it, so why would they bother to do that? They don't need to. And rather than seeing it as getting better at the job. Uh, I mentioned the, the phrase mental toughness earlier. I mean, one of the things that, that I'm working on at the moment is this whole idea about where does people's fortitude come from? You know, and, and mental toughness doesn't mean being hard. It means being robust and yeah. resilient and having bounce back ability and all those kind of things. And one of the things that we've found that's been very interesting is that one of, uh, one of the things that is measured is interpersonal confidence compared to uh, confidence in own abilities. And there's a so often a massive disparity between those two, that people who appear confident and have all the right social skills yeah, are actually lying awake at night worrying about the fact that they can't do things. Yeah, uh, I find this an awful lot. You know, I'd, I'd mentioned earlier on that, uh, you know, our specialism, if you like, is emotional intelligence. And when we look at emotional intelligence, we break it down into 26 granular competencies. And often, and one of those is around personal power, something that we call personal power, which is your your own level of self-esteem, self-belief. But one is around the interpersonal uh, skills. And very often I find that people who have high levels of interpersonal skills don't necessarily equate to having high levels of confidence within themselves. And consequently, what's happening is it pulls down their overall level of EQ. So if we just develop that, that, that personal confidence, that personal self-esteem, actually it can elevate the whole of the EQ and, and actually go on to improve the interpersonal um, uh, relationships as well. But I want to take you back to this phrase, mental toughness, because if you'd have said that to me, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, what I would have read from that phrase is that I need to be tough with people. I need to drive targets. I need to be very task-orientated. 
I, I still remember that, um, you know, when I was in the police service, I was heading up various departments. I was one of the most moved superintendents taking over departments that weren't doing so well um, and turning them around. But uh, I remember towards the latter end of my service that uh, my chief actually turned around to me and said, yeah, but I don't see you gripping people, Cole. I don't see you gripping people. <laughs> uh, and my question really was, well, has the performance improved? Uh, have the grievances gone down? Are people happier? Do people work harder? If that's all going in the right direction, then does it matter that I'm going around gripping people or not? You know, this is the old fashioned reliance on being mentally tough. And I think you're right. I think real mental toughness is about managing our, our own thoughts. Uh, being able to become vulnerable with people. I was just having this conversation yesterday with a group of psychologists. Um, to be vulnerable with people takes an incredible amount of courage, but the reward that you get from that in terms of the level of trust that you build uh, is just uh, incredible. Uh, so mental toughness has changed in terms of language and definition, hasn't it? For definite, and you're right, the, 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 the EQ aspect is central to it. Mm. Yeah, because it, what we're not trying to do is is encourage leaders to build a shell around themselves. That's what they've been doing in many cases over yeah. the last 30, 40 years. We want them to take it down, dismantle it, but still be able to withstand the the, the kind of slings and arrows of outrageous fortune that, that hit them as a consequence when they haven't got their deflector shields up anymore. Whenever I'm working with leaders, I'm trying to bring together their confidence and their own abilities with their interpersonal confidence so that it's real, you know, because otherwise it's a veneer. And for a lot of them, it is. You know, it's a veneer that, that they've put up for their own protection, but don't realise it's actually preventing them for having fulfilling relationships with people because they're not real. Yeah, it just sort of uh, acts as a force field, doesn't it? It's a barrier between effective communication, real communication between them and other people as well. Absolutely. I mean, Professor Peter Clough at Hull was the guy who kind of took this thinking to its nth degree and developed an assessment tool around it, etc., that... That, that I use, and it's very interesting to see how people's profiles. I mean, it's, it, in essence, it's quite simple. It just looks at four areas and splits each of them in half, mm -hmm. and gives marks out of ten for where somebody is on the scale. And the variation you see in some people is so insightful in terms of explaining to you why they are the way they are and why you've experienced the relationship with them that you have, or maybe the challenges you've had with them. You can see it in there. You know that their their commitment to delivering on their promises is really low even though they're high in interpersonal confidence. So they seem like they're really on it and that they're right with you, but actually they're not. You know? <laughs> or their, their self-esteem, you know, their confidence or inabilities is so low that it's getting in the way because they're afraid to try things in case they fail. Do you think, you know, we hear an awful lot about how people have been impacted upon by, you know, the whole lockdown experience, working in isolation. Do you actually think that uh, we may be seeing an increase in people's self-esteem uh, being affected as a result? Yeah, and I, I, absolutely. And what I've experienced so far, which may or may not be symptomatic, is that it makes them more like they were before. So if they already lacked in confidence, it gets even more so. It's almost like a magnifying glass then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And you see it as a consequence. I mean, for me, the whole although I'm one of the clinically extremely vulnerable, so I was isolated for more than two years. Uh, but then I live on the Norfolk coast, so I was isolated already. <laughs> <laughs> You're isolated anyway. Yeah. Avian flu is more dangerous to me with all the geese. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I but, have uh, to say, I must visit Norfolk. I've not been in, what, two or three decades. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, come over and see me. We'll have, we'll have lunch. Definitely. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, 
So I think for me, it actually uh, it played to my strengths. You know, it helped me to have more time to think and to be able to design and develop new things that I never got time to do because I was busy attending meetings that did nothing. You know, and now I, I suddenly have a bandwidth issue and can't attend. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding, kidding, only kidding guys. Um, but uh, <laughs> <I love it. laughs> um, it's it's interesting. Whereas I've seen others who were struggling to feel comfortable and confident and suffered from imposter syndrome. And sometimes it's made it worse because now they don't they they don't they're not getting the signals they're not getting the feedback they're not getting the the support um, because whenever they go into a meeting with their boss in inverted commas they talk about stuff about achievement and what things have got to be done next and the human content has been filtered out. I think though we went through a very interesting journey during lockdown. I think in the early stages of lockdown we suddenly all became human again. Yeah, uh, because it was almost like. It was a wake-up call for so many of us. We were, you know, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We went straight from self-actualization right back down to the very basic needs around uh, food, water, you know, running out, getting as many toilet rolls as possible. Exactly. So, so people reconnected and people saw the humanism in in the relationships that they had. But then something happened where we then I then started hearing from the organizations I worked with uh, I'm actually busier now working remotely than I was uh, when I was working physically face to face because now I go literally go from a meeting uh, to it straight into another meeting. I have more meetings, I have more tasks in my diary now that other people are putting in than I had before. So we went from being really human and then something changed. We became very task oriented again and to some extent we went we went far too far to the other side of the pendulum to where we'd been before. Yeah, exactly so. And I think there's, there's developed in many organisations a level of paranoia at the top about what's mm. going on. You know, you, we saw that how, how many leaders really saw themselves as overseers and, and supervisors. And that they wanted to know exactly what people were doing, and now they couldn't see them anymore. Back to the gripping analogy, isn't it? You know, they felt they'd lost grip over people. It is about gripping, and uh, I did some consultancy with a healthcare provider, uh, twelve hundred people in this, now fourteen hundred people in this healthcare uh, organisation, uh, and uh, I must have done something like twenty nine focus groups and thirty sort of one to one interviews, and consistently the feedback was that uh, I feel like I'm being micromanaged. I feel like um, for the last two years, we worked in a command and control environment where the executive team, as a, as a leader myself, a junior leader, the executive team have re- reached over my shoulder and told me how to do my job. And I feel suffocated as a consequence. And this must be happening in a lot of organisations driven by the sense of paranoia. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I think going back to something we said before, this thing about people aren't talking to you, they're talking to the person that's behind them in case because they're thinking about what they would think of what they're just saying. So they end up kind of amplifying each other's paranoia because they're all afraid to be the, the one that is out of step or that is too soft or that it looks like they've lost control or isn't delivering their results. and things. And so it ends up making everything worse rather than better. I think this is a really good example of the dangers of groupthink and echo chambers, you know, yeah. Um, unless you have a fresh voice in the room saying something different, we're simply just going to be echoing each other's concerns, paranoias, fears, half of which, well, more than half of which aren't even justified, to be honest. Uh, but the impact and the, the the impact that they have is phenomenal on, on the other people in the organisation. It goes back to your point about 
real diversity and about difference that you know one of the great values of of really actually embracing diversity rather than tolerating it you know <laughs> having policies for it is that you get those different perspectives you get those different life experiences you're liable to end up in a different place because you're getting contributions from people who've walked a different path to you and don't have to walk yours yeah you know it's a and it's so powerful in the organisations that get it. I just don't think there are enough of them yet. Something else that you've mentioned, uh, Nigel, and I think is uh, too non-conformist, I think we need to talk about this, <laughs> is policy. Uh, and how many organisations hide behind hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of policies that they've created over time and they almost create like this uh, this castle wall of policies from behind which they can they can protect themselves. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, exactly right. I think I think that's entirely true. And for me, it comes to intent. You know, what's your intent in creating something? Is it to protect yourself against uh, some kind of legislation or or uh, litigation, or is it to help people understand what the rules of engagement and behaviour are? And where you see people, particularly, for example, in in, in really good HR people who create policies for the greater good you get a very different result to the ones who created to make sure they can't be sued. And that feeds into something that I've I've always talked about, you know, the two kinds of HR people. You have the HR people that are constantly driven by a defensive mentality and therefore policy-driven, you know, dotting the T's and checking the I's all the time. Yeah. And I think there's a new kind of HR person evolving now that is – the HR person that understands the business needs, understand the people in the organisation and wants to do everything they can to get the very best out of the people and demonstrate some real leadership. When I'm talking to CEOs quite often, their view of the role of HR is very insightful because if the, mm. the CEO has this view of seeing them as incredibly important and the, the voice of the people and to understand as a kind of a temperature check of what's going on, yeah. you can get real benefit out of it. If they see them as the one that they hope is keeping everything under control so they don't get any hassle, <laughs> then you get a very different kind of result. And therein lies the, this, the, the, the answer to the thinking of that CEO and the culture of the organisation, which is you know, largely what we've been talking about. Yeah. Nigel, I want to thank you. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for sharing your vast amount of experience uh, in leadership and keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> I know that you're still doing it. And uh, I look forward to meeting you sometime. And maybe I might just take a trip out to beautiful Norfolk at some point. That would be excellent. All the very best. Thanks. Then. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.